Well, it's good to be with you this morning, and we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew, really enjoying this. We're coming up after a week where uh, Jesus resisted the temptations of Satan and proved himself to be the true, obedient Son of God, because he was faithful in all the ways that Israel failed, and Adam failed, and we fell. Now, we see that Jesus is going to begin his public ministry, and he's going to begin to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And this should give us hope, right? The message of the kingdom should fill us with hope. But, if we're honest, it's kind of hard to be hopeful in our world, is it not? Like, you just think about a few things. You think every time you turn on the news, you're reminded of just how dark and depressing this world is, aren't you? I mean, you turn on the news and you see that government leaders are making some pretty immoral decisions. Or maybe they're caught in some new scandal, and that shouldn't even surprise us at this point, because that's just how dark our world is. You see that nations are still waging war on each other. You see that bills are being passed in this country that make us wonder if there's any decency and morality left at all. I mean, you hear about children going missing and being abducted. You hear about another mass shooting. You hear about all these tragic events, and you see all this, And it's hard to be hopeful, isn't it? It fills you with depressing, dark thoughts. And you see just how bad this world is. And that's because that's the nature of darkness, right? Darkness will leave you feeling depressed and hopeless and scared. I don't know if you've ever uh, been alone in the dark somewhere before, and maybe you're trying to find your way in the dark. Uh, It's pretty hard to do, right? It's hard to navigate when you're in the dark and you feel scared and hopeless. And the only thing that's going to make you feel hopeful in that situation and give you any sort of direction is what? Light. (laughs) Light is the only thing that's going to bring hope in the darkness. And the beauty of this passage is that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. As Jesus comes on scene and begins to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, he's saying the darkness of this world, it's leaving. Sin's rule and reign is over, church. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that's done. That's gone. No more is Satan going to be the ruler of this earth and have reign and dominion. He's gone. And the darkness is leaving with him. Jesus is saying that the true ruler of this world has come and he is beginning his reign now. And that's good. He begins this by proclaiming the message of the kingdom. And we see from the very outset of Jesus's ministry He is set on expelling the darkness from our world and proclaiming that the effects of sin in our world are leaving with it. And that's good news. That's a message of hope. And that's ultimately what I want you to see here. You see, the Bible is telling us here that we can have hope even in a world of darkness because Jesus is the true light who purges the darkness. We can have hope even though our world does seem dark and depressing even though it wears on us and makes us feel like we can be only hopeless in this world, the Bible is telling us here, no, actually we can have hope even in this world of darkness because Jesus is the true light who purges the darkness. Now, that is good news, but it's a little too general, right? Like, anyone in our world and you're like, hey, uh, you can have hope. They're going to say, okay, that's easy for you to say because you don't know what I've been going through this past year, right? You don't know what my life has been like. You don't know how everything is falling apart. You don't know what I'm battling. You don't know how hard my life is. It's easy for you to tell me I can have hope, but if you're going to say that, I'm going to need some specifics. I want to know when can I have this hope. 
I want to know what kind of hope this actually is and when I'm going to begin to feel full as I can feel. And that's fair, right? Let's, let's grant them that. Those are some fair points. And so let's just consider together this morning, what, what exactly is the hope that Jesus gives us today? How would you articulate that? If you're going to go and tell someone, hey, there's hope in Christ, and they say, okay, well, what exactly is that hope? What do you tell them? And that's what we're going to consider together this morning. So I want you to look with me at the Bible, verses 12 through 14 again. The Bible says here, now, when he, being Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. All right, now, you have to remember, John was the forerunner to the Messiah, right? He was the one who was to go before Jesus and prepare the way for Jesus, and not just prepare the way in a general sense, but remember, he's preparing hearts. John was calling people to repentance and kingdom living, preparing our hearts to receive King Jesus and live as part of his kingdom. That was John's job, but now John's been arrested, and Jesus withdraws and goes to Galilee. And a lot of, you know, liberal theologians will say he thought he was going to be arrested, and he ran out of fear. No, no. <laughs> Nothing can be further from the truth. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Jesus Christ has no fears, okay? He especially does not fear man. So let's get that straight at the outset. Jesus did not run out of fear. He ran to fulfill his purpose that God the Father had given him. That's what he's doing here. Because you have to remember, John was the forerunner, and he has prepared the way of the Lord, and now Jesus hears that John has been arrested. So in Jesus' mind, he's thinking, God the Father has sovereignly pushed John to the side. He's removed him from public ministry, and if the forerunner's gone, what does that mean, folks? It's time for the main event. So Jesus hears that John's been arrested, and he thinks, it's time. Let's get to work. And we see from the very outset that Jesus does not stay in his hometown, right? He doesn't stay there in Nazareth. He doesn't even go and stay in Jerusalem or Judea. He withdraws and he goes into Capernaum. And I want to tell you, that's because Jesus was mission-minded from the very beginning of his ministry. Because you might be thinking, well, why did he go to Capernaum? Because let me just remind you, Capernaum was a really small town. It was a really insignificant town. And so if you're thinking, hey, Jesus is going to begin his public ministry... It'd be a great place to make, no, start in Jerusalem. There's the temple there. There's the epicenter of religion there. If he wants to make a splash on the scene, don't you think he'd start in Jerusalem or somewhere in the area of Judea? And yet he doesn't. He goes to Capernaum, a small fishing village that had a Roman tax pole station there. So what's Jesus doing? Why did he go to Capernaum? And there are a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons is because there were certain people in Capernaum at the time who are going about their everyday lives totally unaware of the fact that Jesus is about to enter into their lives and change them forever. There was a, a brother there. There were two brothers there who were fishermen. One's named Peter. The other's named Andrew. There's another man there named Philip who had a close friend named Nathaniel. There were two brothers there named James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were also known as the sons of thunder. And let me tell you, that's a nickname you got to earn, okay? <laughs> There's some rowdy guys, those two. We're going to learn more about them later. But they're living there at the time. And then also in Capernaum at the time, 
there was this unsuspecting, unassuming tax collector named Matthew, who was hated by all of his Jewish brothers because he worked the tax station. And all these guys are living in Capernaum at the time, going about their everyday lives, and Jesus is about to enter into their lives and change them forever. Jesus is going to call them to follow him, and they are going to begin to do more for the kingdom of God than they could ever think or hope or imagine. These fishermen, these everyday folks, these tax collectors, they are going to have a lasting impact on history. Just think about the fact that you know the names of fishermen from the first century in a small town that doesn't even exist anymore. Have you thought about that? It's because that's what happens when you follow Jesus. That's the hope that he gives people to see here. Jesus gives ordinary people the hope of living eternally significant lives. And that's good news for us, isn't it? How encouraging is that? That you don't have to be some PhD or some scholar. You don't have to be some Einstein to have a lasting impact on the kingdom of God. That all you have to do is be a willing follower of Christ and choose to follow him. And Jesus says, I'm going to use you to do great things. And you can't even imagine what I'm going to do with your life. And if you want a good example of this, there was this, uh, there was this guy living in the 1600s, right? And uh, he was almost entirely uneducated. Started his education, had to drop out. He became a metal worker, called a tinker at the time, okay? And this guy was a notorious sinner for most of his life until he became an adult, heard the gospel, he repented of his sins, and became a follower of Christ. Now, here's what happened. He continued to be a metal worker, right? The story does not go, and he became some great scholar or something. No, he was still just a tinker. But he knew the Bible because he started studying the Bible, and he started preaching. And he was preaching to nonconformist congregations, meaning they weren't part of the Church of England. And that was illegal at the time. Okay, so, so follow me here. If you were going to preach, you had to do it within the Church of England. But he was preaching in his hometown of England to people who were not part of the Church of England. So what did the king do? The king threw him in jail. And he stayed in jail the first time for 12 years. Now, what do you think an uneducated tinker did for 12 years in prison? How many of you said write a book? Yeah, everybody? Okay. He wrote a book. And again, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal, Pastor? We're talking about an uneducated metal worker. The book probably was no good. It probably didn't make any sense. And it was written in the 1600s. It's probably been lost to history, right? Why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about it because the man's name was John Bunyan. And the book was The Pilgrim's Progress. An uneducated metal worker in the 1600s ended up writing a book that was the second best-selling book from the time of its publication. It was second only to the Bible, by the way. From the time of its publication up until about the 1950s. Still one of the best-selling books of all time. It has led countless people, thousands upon thousands, to actually read the Bible for themselves and actually become followers of Christ. It was Charles Spurgeon's favorite book. John Bunyan went on to even lead a great revival in Bedford, being totally uneducated, and lead countless souls to Christ. So don't tell me that you, being here this morning, can't do something great for the kingdom of God. 
How encouraging is that? If you had told John Bunyan, the second he became a follower of Christ, that you're going to affect not only Christian history, but literary history, and you're going to have secular scholars in secular universities studying this great allegory about what it means to be a follower of Christ, he would have laughed in your face. I'm just a tinker. I don't even have education. And yet, when Jesus says, follow me, he gives ordinary people the hope of living eternally significant lives. And folks, I want you to understand, that still applies to you today. You have that same hope today. And the good news is you can do it right where you are. You don't even have to quit your job and pursue full-time vocational ministry to have a lasting impact on the kingdom of God. Now, I do pray that many of you would quit what you're doing and you would go on to the mission field and I'd be happy to send you out of here. We will give as many members to the mission field as God will call. But if that's not you, I want you to understand you can still have an impact on the kingdom of God right where you're at. I could tell you about a man who wrote the most significant books on Hebrew and Greek for pastors and how pastors can keep up their Hebrew and Greek. It had a huge impact on many pastors in ministry and that man was a full-time banker, okay? So starting next week, we're going to start a class on Hebrew and Greek. Hope you can come. (laughs) But all these people work in ordinary, everyday jobs, and they have this huge impact on the kingdom of God. And for many of you, all it takes is to say, what can I do for Christ and his kingdom in my current walk of life? For many of us, it's going to be something as simple as just telling our friends and our family members and our co-workers about Jesus. Just having the courage to tell them about the hope that is in Jesus Christ, the salvation that he offers us, and the gospel message. You can have a huge impact on the kingdom just by doing that. For for some of you, I hope that it's starting a ministry. I've had so many people in this church come to me and they'll say, Hey, Pastor, I'm really passionate about this people. I'm passionate about homeless people. I'm passionate about evangelism. I'm passionate about missions. I want to do this. Can we start a ministry like that in our church? My answer is almost always... Yeah, absolutely. And you should be the one to start it and lead it (laughs) and run with it. Because if God has placed it on your heart, that's God telling you he wants you to be part of it. I want you to understand something. So I want you to hear me on this. I don't have to be the leader of every ministry in this church. Someone say amen, please. Thank you. I agree. I agree 100%. I don't have to be the leader of every ministry in this church. We are all just citizens of the kingdom. God has called me to shepherd this church, and I'll do it as long as he keeps me here. I'm happy to do it. I want to die in this pulpit. But he is going to also call you to lead some ministry. So listen, maybe you're passionate about the homeless community. Maybe you're passionate about prisoners. Maybe you're passionate about missions internationally or nationally. And God is calling you to be part of that. I want to encourage you and say, start that ministry. I'll encourage you. I'll help you. But you can have a huge impact on the kingdom of God no matter where you are in your walk with Christ right now. So here's what I want you to understand, though. You can do this, and I want you to understand this. God does great things with unassuming people, but listen to me, church. God does not do great things with uncommitted people. Do you see the difference there? God does this all the time. God does great things with unassuming people, but not do great things with uncommitted people. Because I imagine there's some people here this morning who are saying, listen, pastor, I hear what you're saying. I've been a follower of Christ for years and years and years, and I'm pretty unassuming. I'm pretty ordinary, and yet God has not used me to do something great for the kingdom. Well, I would just ask you, how committed are you? You you can't just show up at church when it's convenient for you, call yourself a Christian, have nothing to do with Christ at any other point in your life, and expect God's going to use you to be the next John Bunyan. It doesn't work that way. 
wilderness, you can be unassuming, but you've got to be committed. And so I want to just encourage you this morning and ask you to consider how can you begin to intentionally uh, live your life for God and His glory? How can you commit yourself to Christ and His kingdom? Because I promise you, if you will commit yourself to Christ and to living for His kingdom and His glory, God's going to begin to do more than you can even think or imagine in your life. And you can have a life of eternal significance. And that's hopeful, is it not? That's the hope that we have with Jesus and the message of the kingdom. And listen, there's even more hope here, okay? I want you to look with me at verses 14 through 16. This is what the Bible says. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. <clears throat> the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, if you want to remember why this is so significant, then remember your biblical history. When the people of Israel were entering into the promised land, God said, you got to get rid of all the Canaanites. Expel them from the land. They can't be there anymore, okay? Well, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali did not do that. They did not expel all the Canaanites. And so what happened is they began to intermarry. And they became a mixed people. And because the Canaanites were a pagan people, it opened up these tribes of Israel to paganism and sin. And we see from the very outset, they fell away. And the land that they're occupying here goes on to be the land of Galilee. And they were a mixed people who were not purely, fully Jewish, ethnically Jewish. They, they were not following Jewish regulations. They were a mixed people. And the Jews who lived in Jerusalem and Judea hated them. The Jews who were living in Jerusalem and Judea absolutely despised the Galileans. They rejected them. They wanted nothing to do with them. And you can see this pretty early on in the Gospel of John. Because here's what's happening in the Gospel of John. Uh, they're celebrating the Feast of Booths, and Jesus begins to teach and preach, and they say, oh, this sounds like the Messiah. This is pretty significant. And they begin to recognize Jesus is and so when you see what it says, John 7, 41, uh, others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Do, do, you, hear, do you hear the racism there? Do, do you hear the, the xenophobia there? Do you, do you hear the, the tension and the hostility there? I mean, just picture this. They're, they're hearing Jesus teach and preach, and they recognize this guy's got it. He knows the message. He looks like he could be the Christ. And then someone says, yeah, but he's from Galilee. And they're like, oh, everything fits except that. Because do we really think God is going to choose a Messiah? In fact, when the Pharisees heard this, they got really angry with the crowds. And they started cursing the crowds. They called the crowds a curse. And then they turned on one of their own. Because this is what we uh, see later in that same passage. John 7, verse 50. Nicodemus, you remember him, a Pharisee who went to see Jesus at night, who had gone to Jesus before, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Very reasonable, right? He's like, hey, uh, before we condemn him, let's just consider what he's saying, test it against the word of God, see if it accords with it. A very wise approach, right? But notice their response in verse 52. Are you from Galilee also? Oof. 
If you're a fair, that's just like a, a jab right to you. That, that's a dig that you don't want to deal with. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. In other words, they're not even open to the idea that the Messiah could possibly come from Galilee. Galilee was hated by the religious elite of Jesus' day. And yet, I want you to notice this, church. Galilee is the exact place Jesus starts his earthly ministry. He goes to those who are despised and hated and rejected by the world, and that is the place that he starts proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. What do you think that says about Jesus? That he started his ministry there? Well, it tells us a lot, but, but one thing in particular is that Jesus was not beholden to the cultural trends or the religious traditions of his day. Jesus did not care about the traditions of man. He did not care about the cultural perceptions. Jesus cared about the kingdom of God and his mission from God and the word of God being proclaimed. We could take a lesson from that, okay? That's another sermon. I won't preach that one today, but it's there. So you can think about that. So it tells us that Jesus is centered on the word of God and the mission of God. But the other thing, and this is what I want you to really notice here, this is the important point. It's that Jesus cares about those that the world rejects and hates and despises. That's our Messiah. He loves and cares for those who are in the world. By starting his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles, Jesus is proclaiming loud and clear from the very start that the kingdom of God is not just for the Jewish people and those that the world looks favorably upon. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God is for the nations. It is for every person who would turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation, who would respond to Jesus' call to follow him. This is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the people who have been despised and rejected, they now have a great light shining on them, and Jesus is giving them hope. Do you see the hope that's here, church? Jesus gives the excluded of the world the hope of being included in the kingdom. Do you know how impactful that would be for the, the people living in Galilee at the time? I mean, just imagine you're one of those people and you feel like the world has hated you and rejected you and they want nothing to do with you. You feel like you can't even be part of your own culture and religion and society. And Jesus says, I'm coming with the kingdom of God and I've got an invitation for you. You can be part of that. That's significant. That's what Jesus does. That's the hope that comes with his message. He says, hey, even if the world has rejected you, even if the world wants nothing to do with you, even if the world looks its noses down upon you, you follow me and you can be part of God's everlasting kingdom. And there's a really, really cool example of this, even just right up the road from us in Pickens. Living in Pickens, there's a man named Tracy Gant. And some of y'all have had the opportunity to meet Tracy. Awesome man. Love Tracy. But Tracy had a really rough past. All right, He grew up in rough conditions. He ran with the wrong crowd. He got heavily involved in drugs and alcohol, and he eventually ended up in prison. And when he was there, he was looked down upon by the world. They wanted nothing to do with him at all. In fact, when I was talking with Tracy, he said that when people looked at me, all they saw was another black man with tattoos, a drug and alcohol problem, and a rap sheet, and they wanted nothing to do with him. The world robbed him of hope and made him feel despised and rejected and like he was less than. But here's what happened. God was not done with Tracy. As Tracy was in prison, 
He began to read the Bible. He began to meet with ministers. And he finally understood the gospel message. He repented of his sins and he trusted in Christ for salvation and he became a Christian. And it was amazing. You talked to him, he said, the world took all my hope from me and made me feel like I was a nobody and yet Jesus said he wanted to be part of my life. That he wanted me to come and join his kingdom. Jesus filled him with hope. And God wasn't done with him yet. Because as he was in prison, Tracy said he began to feel like God was calling him into ministry. Something he never expected. And he made God a promise. He said, if I get out of here, I'll fulfill that promise. I will go into full-time ministry. And that's what he did. He got out of prison. He's now the pastor of a church called New Deliverance in Pickens. And not only that, but he and his wife, Sunshine, started the Pickens County Shelter of Hope, where they house the homeless community. They rehabilitate addicts. And he's got down to like such a science now that he said he can take someone off the street and within six months he can have them set up with a place to live, a job, and a clean record moving forward. I mean, it's just an amazing work that God is using Tracy to do right now in Pickens. What a great story, right? How amazing is that? You have a man that was totally rejected by the world and made to feel like he was nothing better than dirt on someone's shoe, and yet God said, you come and join me. You be part of my kingdom, and I will show you what I can do with you. Folks, that's the hope that we have in Christ today. He'll take the despised and the rejected of our world and give them the hope of joining his everlasting kingdom. I want you to know there's still many in our world who feel this way, isn't there? There are so many in our world who feel like the world has turned its back on them. There are so many in our world today, maybe even people here this morning, who feel like every time people look at them, they're silently judging them and critiquing them. They're, they're putting them down. They feel like the world is always looking their noses down on them and they despise them for all sorts of reasons. It could be the color of their skin. It could be their financial situation. It could be the type of car they drive. It could be the type of house they live in. It could be the way they look. But most of the time, you know what it's due to? It's their past. The world hears little rumors and glimpses of the truth. They hear about someone's past. And then what do they do? They start holding that against them, right? They begin to look down their noses on them judge them, critique them, make them feel like they are good for nothing because they have a past that is full of sin. And I want to tell you this morning, the church has done a pretty poor job of ministering to these people up at this point. And I don't want that to be our church. I don't want us to be a church that is bent on judging people and critiquing people and making them feel like they have to hit a number of checklist items before they can come and hear the gospel message here. I want George's Creek Baptist Church to be a light shining in the darkness of our community that says no matter how broken you are, no matter how much sin you have in your past, no matter what you've done, no matter what kind of car you drive, the house you live in, no matter how guilty you feel or full of shame you feel, you come here, you turn from your sins, you trust in Christ, you will be part of the kingdom of God. That is what we're called to do as Christians. People don't need judgment for their past. They need hope for their future. And the church should be the ones to give it to them. That's the message we have. It's a message of light and hope. So we need to be asking ourselves this morning, am I ignoring, neglecting, rejecting, and judging the very people that Jesus would be spending time with if he was still here physically ministering on earth. And folks, if, that, if that's you, the call to repent is open this morning. There should never be a Christian 
who is rejecting the very people that Jesus would be hanging out with and spending time with if he was still here ministering physically on earth today. You see, here's what I love about the kingdom of God and and our church, because it applies to the kingdom of God, but here's what I love about our church. We've got people in here who who come from all sorts of backgrounds, right? We've got people in here who are really well-off financially. We've got people in here who are living paycheck to paycheck, barely making it. We've got people in here who are highly educated and people who have hardly any education. We've got people in here who are working uh, engineering jobs, business jobs. We've got teachers. We've got ex-cons. We've got people who are filled, who have past filled with so much sin that it's hard for them to even come through these doors because they're still plagued by that shame and the guilt of their sin. And yet, you know what unites us all? Jesus Christ. We heard the gospel message. We repented of our sins. We came to Christ for salvation, and none of us were excluded. Were we, church? The invitation was not withheld from us. Because Jesus says, I want you to be part of my kingdom. I don't care what the world thinks about you. I want you to come and join my everlasting kingdom. Church, I want us to remember this morning that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. You cannot out the grace of God and the cross of Christ. And the invitation to join Jesus' kingdom still stands today. This is the message we share. This is the message of the kingdom. And it should give people hope and fill them with light, not send them further running into the darkness. If that's what the church is known for, if that's what you're known for as a Christian, making people feel like they belong in the darkness and they should continue to pursue the darkness rather than show them light and hope, then we need to rethink our Christian walk. Because Jesus brings us hope. He's the true light who purges the darkness. And there's one final aspect of hope I want you to see here this morning. Verses 16 through 17. Notice this with me. It says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, There's something important here I want you to notice that would be easy in our day. Jesus goes to Galilee of the Gentiles, and he goes to a people, a real people, who are literally in the shadow of death, here it says. They're dwelling in darkness. They're a people filled with sin. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Our world today wants Jesus to go to these people and tell them everything's fine. Our world wants Jesus to go to these people who are plagued by sin, pat them on the back and say, everything's okay. You don't have to change anything. Your life is just fine the way it is. All you have to do is just add me to it and all things are good. That's what our world wants. Because our world, in our day, confuses love with approval. You know that, right? Our world confuses love with approval. If you want an example of this, just just think about it. If you don't approve of something that someone does today, they'll say, well, you don't love me then, right? Because if you really loved me, you'd be totally fine with me doing this. You'd be totally fine with me living this way. You'd be totally fine with this being a part of my life. If you truly love me, then you would approve of everything in my life. And they apply this to Jesus, and they say, well, Jesus body, therefore, Jesus must be totally fine with how I'm living and what I'm doing, even if it goes against his word, because if he loves me, he'll give his approval to my life and what I'm doing. Do you see what I mean, church? Our world confuses love with approval. And so they want Jesus to go to these people and give his approval as a demonstration that he does truly love them. 
But that's not what Jesus does, is it? Jesus doesn't go to them and say, hey, everything's okay. You just keep living how you're living. You acknowledge that and everything's good. That's not what he does. It's the most unloving thing that you can do for someone is ignore their sin and affirm their sin just so you don't offend them by calling them out on their sin. Do you understand that? There's nothing loving about allowing people to continue in their sin knowing it sends them to an eternity in hell just so you don't offend them by calling them out on their sin. I mean, imagine if you had a loved one who was addicted to meth and they were killing themselves with it and you could tell themselves with it and they, you see the effects that it's having. You know, if they continue down this path, they're going to kill themselves. Would it be loving of you to ignore that and say nothing? No, in fact, I'd say you pretty much have to hate that person not to say anything, right? If you know where it's leading and know how bad it is and you know they're going to end up dead, you pretty much have to hate them not to say anything at all. The most loving thing that you can do in that moment is to say, this is killing me and you must rid it from your life or else you are... Are they going to be happy about that? They're going to be angry at first. They may lash out at you. They may be even hurt and offended because here's the thing. I imagine the people that Jesus was preaching to in Galilee were pretty offended at first by his message. But that's the nature of light, isn't it? Light is always most offensive in the dark, right? Light's always most offensive in the dark. Maybe at some point in your life you've been to a movie theater. Anybody? Okay, everybody. Got it. After sitting in a dark theater for two hours, maybe two and a half hours if you saw a Marvel movie or the Titanic, (laughs) And you're sitting there for that long and you thought, oh, here's a good idea. I'll beat traffic by exiting out that door that's at the bottom of the, you know, the, the bottom of the theater that leads directly outside. And so what do you do? You get that door and what happens? Boom! Immediately blinded by the light, right? You can't see for two and a half weeks. That's your life. You, you go out there and is the light a welcome sight? No, not at first. It hurts your eyes. It's offensive. Why? Because you've been in the light is always going to be offensive to those who are in the darkness. And so we can't expect people who have lived in the dark their entire lives to be immediately enamored by the gospel message. Because listen to me, folks, whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, the gospel is offensive. Now, Christians are not supposed to be offensive, but the gospel message is offensive. The true gospel, not the gospel that the world likes today, not the social gospel, not the... The true says you are dead in your sin. That you're not a good person. Even if you like to think you're a good person, you are not good. You could never be good. And nothing you do of your own volition will ever be enough to make you acceptable in the eyes of God. The true gospel says that all of your loves and your desires and your will are corrupted by sin. And that unless you turn from all of that and leave it all behind and put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, you will be... But if you come to Christ... Put your faith and hope in Him. You will have eternal life. That's what the true gospel says. Now that's offensive. People don't want to hear that about themselves, do they? Everybody thinks they're a good person. Everybody thinks they can make their own way to heaven. And so they're immediately offended. But I want to tell you something, church. A person must first be offended by the gospel before they can respond to the offer of the gospel. That's just how it works. In fact, I'd go so far to say that if you've never been offended by the gospel message, I doubt you've truly ever understood the gospel message. But if you do understand it, and you see what Jesus is saying here, there's hope. Because Jesus 
because he does love these people, he does not shy away from confronting their sin. Instead, he is the light who guides them out of the darkness. And that's the hope he offers us here. Jesus gives the enslaved the hope of freedom. That's ultimately what he's doing. When he tells people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying, you leave the darkness by following me. I'm the light. You're going to follow the light out of this darkness. And so if you're enslaved in sin, there is freedom in Christ today. You see, the call to repent is not an announcement of condemnation. It's an invitation to salvation. And that's what he's doing. Jesus is letting us know that there is hope of deliverance for our sin. Here's the good news, church. It means that no matter what our particular sin is, no matter how enslaved we feel, no matter how long we've been enslaved to sin, there is freedom in Christ today. It doesn't matter if you feel like sin has the power over you. It doesn't matter if you feel like there's nothing you can do to get yourself out of your situation or break free from it because you don't have to. Jesus is the church. He'll do it for you. You turn to him and put your hope and faith in him. He'll break the bonds and you will be free today. That's the hope we have because here's the thing. I know there are people here this morning who feel like the Galileans right here. They feel like they're dwelling in that land of darkness in the shadow of death. And they feel like there's nothing they can do to rid themselves of the sin in their lives or the chains that have enslaved them for so long. Can I just tell you this morning? There's, you turn to Jesus and He will deliver you. He will break the bonds of sin that it has over you and you will be free. There is freedom in Christ. Why is that? It's because Jesus is the true light who purges the darkness not just from our world, but from our lives, church. You can have light in your life today and the darkness can be gone by turning to faith in Christ. And because of that, we have hope, don't we? We have a whole lot of hope. And so we need to embrace this hope today. We need to begin to live eternally significant lives by embracing kingdom life and committing ourselves to live for King Jesus. We need to take this message of hope to the rejected and the despised of our world and let them know there's a place for them in the kingdom of God. And we need to be bold with this message, church. We need to demonstrate the love of Christ by calling people to of their sins and turn to Christ today that they too may have eternal life and a life filled with hope. You see, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of light. And as Christians, we are called to be lights for Jesus in this dark world. So how about we actually start doing that? How about we do that, church? Let's take this message, let's take it to the world, and let's be lights for Jesus in a world of darkness. Amen? Let's pray.